Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. Today we're looking at Lord's Day 7 and question 22. The Catechist asks, What then is necessary for a Christian to believe? And the answer is, all that is promised us in the Gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith teach us in summary. So before we move on to talk about the summary of the Christian faith that the Catechist gives us here, which is basically the Apostles' Creed, we're going to talk about the Gospel. What is the Gospel? How is the Gospel going to be proclaimed? Because the Catechist says that our Christian faith, what is necessary for the Christian belief, is all that is promised us in the Gospel. So what is the Gospel? Nowadays every organisation, every business, every ministry, and even every church is expected to have a mission statement. A wee while ago I was approached by a representative of a missionary society, a man who wanted to come down to Ballymacashan and tell us all about his missionary work. I'd never heard of his organisation, so obviously the first thing I did was I asked him to send us their statement of belief. I wanted to know that we would not be supporting an organisation with aims that are not biblical, or not evangelical. Instead he sent me his organisation's mission statement. So I asked him again, Please send me your statement of belief. This time he sent me a copy of their vision and I asked him again. And it seems that they had a mission statement, and they had a vision statement, but they didn't have a doctrinal statement. We didn't know what they believed. Well, it is to say they didn't get invited. Now, do we need a mission statement? Yes, of course we do. We need a clear understanding about the aims and purposes of the church. But our mission statement has already been given to us by Jesus. We find it in the closing words of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to verse 20. It's often known as the Great Commission. So we're going to read those verses and then look at them together. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16 to verse 20. I'm reading here in the King James Version. Verse 16 begins, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. So we're going to look at these verses together, and we're going to see a great claim, and a global command, and a constant certainty. A great claim. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I suppose we could call this lesson the greatest commission ever. The disciples were in a special place that day. They'd been told by Jesus to be in a certain place. In verse 10, he told them to go to Galilee where they would meet with him. So there they are and they're on a mountain in obedience to the Lord. He approaches them and we're told that some worshipped him and that some doubted. Now why did they doubt? They had met the risen Lord several times at this point. Even Thomas had had his doubts and his fears calmed and he had thrust his hand into the Saviour's wounds, and he had believed. William Hendrickson suggests there's nothing profound in this. They may just have seen him as he approached from the distance, and wondered if it really was Jesus coming up the path, the mountain path, to meet them. When Jesus met them that day, he began by making this amazing claim. He says, All power is given unto me. It's power that's complete and comprehensive. So think of the extent of the omnipotence of God. We can't understand it. We can't comprehend the greatness of the power of God. That power that God simply spoke and created the universe out of nothing. We can't understand how God took a handful of dust and breathed life into it and it became a living human being. We can't understand the power of God in preservation the power of God in the coming judgment. And yet Paul wrote, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages. All this power that Jesus has, that he talks about all power being given unto me, that power is complete and it is comprehensive. And think about it, all of that power is concentrated in the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been given unto him. It is his. It's seen in Paul's great hymn in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's temporal power, power in this world, and it's eternal power. It's spiritual power, and it's earthly power. It's power that relates to his church. It's because of this great statement of Christ that we are required and equipped to carry out his commission and his command. Thus the deliberate inclusion of the word, therefore, in verse 19. Now why is Jesus asserting his authority in heaven and earth before he delivers this charge to his disciples? Well, because they will need to know that when they go forth in his name, 
they carry his divine warrant, his authority. Back in the 70s and 80s when I was a constable, I carried a little card in my pocket. It was called a warrant card. It was signed by the chief constable and it authorised me to exercise certain powers. Because of that card, I could arrest people. Because of that card, I could deprive them of their liberty. It was my token of authority to carry out the task for which I have been commissioned. Now Jesus has given us a warrant to go and to spread the good news, and we do so with his authority. The thing that we see in this great commission is that not only is there a great claim being made here, but there's a global command. We are to go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, with all that authority and power backing us up, what does Jesus command us to do with it? Are we to change the world? Are we to hold great power-filled crusades? Are we to raise the dead? Are we to seek riches and fame for ourselves? Well, strangely not. Let's see what we're supposed to do. We are, first of all, to go. Well, that's self-explanatory. We're not to sit here and hope that sinners will just drop in, even though that does happen from time to time. We are to be proactive in our teaching and evangelism. We are to take the initiative and to go. And we're to make disciples. The AV here just reads teach. Perfectly understandable translation. Particularly in light of the command in verse 20 to teach them all things. But it's not a literal rendition of the Textus Receptus. Some of the more modern versions like the New King James Version translates the word as make disciples. The Greek here is mathetai. Whereas in verse 20, the word in the Greek that is used is didas kontes, and so accurately translates to teaching. Now, what we have to ask ourselves is here, if Jesus' command is to make disciples, how are we doing with that? Consider the modern evangelistic methods used in the church nowadays. It's the legacy of a man called Charles Finney. Modern crusade evangelism bringing in a famous evangelist a celebrity who will draw a crowd and then get a crusade choir and a song leader and a band and begin to advertise the event and use the the latest advertising techniques and get the event to start and the evangelist comes and he's very persuasive and the choir sings emotional songs And the music plays softly upon the emotions and the appeal to respond to the invitation is given and the seeker must make his or her decision. An altar call might come. One after the other they raise their hands and they walk to the front of the building and one by one they sign the decision cards and they go into the counselling room And they're asked to pray the sinner's prayer. And the counsellor assures them that they are saved and gives them some helpful literature and maybe a Bible. And they leave the building and they wondered 
or they wonder rather what has just happened to them. And the next day the emotional appeal has gone and they're back at work and they're among their old colleagues. And maybe they're listening to filthy blasphemous talk and they're invited to the pub after work. I wonder many people have been through that experience and the whole thing has made them totally hardened against Christianity. I wonder how many have been through that experience and they then said, I tried it and it didn't work. When in fact what they had tried was just an emotional experience, not biblical Christianity. Let's be realistic. For some Christians today, it's more about figures, about chalking up results than about making disciples. Think of modern church structures. I mean, the old biblical church consists of deacons and elders who have been largely discarded in favour of a structure designed to promote church growth. So nowadays a visionary pastor chooses his office bearers and they set up a system of small groups within a very large church membership. And the small group leaders are usually pretty theologically challenged, to say the least. They have little or no training, they have no qualifications to teach, they know nothing about biblical exegesis or teaching practice or hermeneutics. So the elders supply them with audiovisual courses or written study guides and afterwards the group shares their experiences. And they read texts and they ask, what does this text mean to me? And the whole shallow experience-driven style of pseudo-Christianity gets perpetuated. But the people are not challenged to repent. They're not upset after all, sure they're not. We don't want to annoy anybody. So they're not made into disciples. Now consider what's being commanded by Christ here. A disciple is a pupil. A disciple is a learner. We're to make pupils who will spend a lifetime learning and researching into the ways of the Lord. A man or a woman who will want to read the word and seek God's will and walk in the footsteps of the Lord. Christianity is not just a heart religion. It is that. But it's a mind religion. It's a thinking religion. We are to feed the sheep with the word. We are to feed their minds with the word of God so that they learn And the more they learn, the more they want to learn. So Jesus tells his disciples that they're to go into all the world and they're to make disciples. But there's something else they have to do. They're to administer the sacraments. That's interesting, isn't it? The sacraments, and Jesus here specifically mentions baptism. The sacraments are part of the Great Commission. The fact that Jesus specifically mentions baptism in this context is really important. One of the more liberal members of a former church was giving me her opinion on my position on baptism. She thought that I was missing a wonderful opportunity. I should be baptizing as many babies as possible. We should never, ever, ever turn one away, no matter what the circumstances in which the parents were living. I disagreed strongly and argued that faith must be present before baptism could be administered. 
so that the promises conferred in in the sacrament could be appropriated. After the meeting in which she'd made those remarks, her husband cornered me for being too hard on his wife. After all, he said, she was just being faithful to the Great Commission to go out into the world and baptise as many people as possible. What she was missing, and what he was missing, was that word and sacrament are inextricably linked. Baptism is important. But baptism doesn't bring any person into a saving relationship with Christ. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, baptism is linked with circumcision, the sign and seal of the righteousness of Christ, accepted by faith. Paul writes there, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, in which he had yet been uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Read Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. Paul argues there that baptism has replaced circumcision. In verse 11 he says, In whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So baptism is to be regarded as a sign and seal of the righteousness of Christ, accepted by faith. It's very important so important that Christ singles it out as part of the church's mission. And note very carefully the Trinitarian formula here, because we can't pass this by without making some simple comment on the formula given by Christ for baptism. There is one name, the name. To be baptised onto the name would imply being identified with that name, taking that name and all that it stands for upon oneself. There's not three names. The word name is singular, for God is one God, and yet there are three persons in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't say in the names of the Father and Son and Holy Ghost. That's a great illustration of the Trinity. You see, even in the exercise of the Great Commission, even in evangelism, even in the seeking of souls and the preaching of the gospel, Christian truth cannot be neglected. You will hear some people with erroneous views in the Trinity claiming that all that matters is souls are saved. Well, that's not all that matters. Back in the 1970s, a very well-known local pastor in the Belfast area was challenged on his views of the Godhead. He was tempted on one or two occasions into a radio station where an orthodox theologian challenged him in those beliefs. But he was so slippery. His argument was that all he was concerned with was seeing people saved. Why worry about minor doctrines like the Trinity when people are being brought to saving faith in Christ? And he sounded so offended and so hurt that he'd even been asked such questions 
by a man who he implied was more interested in doctrine than in souls. In fact, he actually got support uh, from many liberal evangelicals. Yes, there are liberal evangelicals who flocked to his church after those services. And yet here is Jesus in the commissioning of his church, talking about the gospel and being dogmatic about the Trinity. So we're told here that we're to go. We're told we're to make disciples. We're told that we're to rightfully administer the sacraments. And we're told that we're to practice church discipline. Because part of our teaching must include urging the Christian to walk in the ways of Christ, to obey him, to keep his commandments. Now, as we have learned in previous lessons, that's not a saving ordinance. It is a response, a grateful response to Christ's love for us. Part of our commission is to build up the church, to edify the believers, to bring them to perfection so that they are being prepared for heavenly glory. And that will involve practical discipleship, discipline. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we have this multifaceted command and commission. It's not a suggestion. It's not a matter for debate. It is a direct order. We are to go into all the world and we are to make disciples. We are to rightfully and properly observe the sacraments, understanding the doctrine that underlies them. Given by our Saviour, we are to train believers for heaven. And that's the church's task. And it's nothing more than that. And it's nothing less than that. It is all about making disciples preaching and teaching and letting them see what we are teaching about Christ as the sacraments point to him. Finally, I said there was one more point, a constant certainty. For Jesus said here, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. In this commission that Jesus has given us, we have a wonderful comfort. As we go about his work, as we preach the gospel, we are not alone. He tells us to look. He says, lo, I do, is the Greek word. It's the same idea as conveyed when John the Baptist cried, Behold the Lamb of God, Ediha amnos tu Think of it as being, Behold, I am with you. It's emphatic. It's not just a promise. It's a fact. Christ is with us as we preach the word. The phrase, even unto the end of the world, is literally, I am with you all those days to the end of the world. That's important. 
whatever the day may bring. There are good days and there are bad days. There will be happy days and there will be disappointing days. There will be days of rejoicing. There will be days of persecution. Whatever the day brings, as we enact the command and obey the command that Christ has given us, he goes with us, walking with us all along the way as we preach and teach and disciple and build up the body of Christ, preparing the church for when the Lord will come and take us home.